It is our tradition, our custom to stand for the reading of God's word. Can I invite you to do that as we read today? And as we listen, I'll be reading from Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1 and beginning with about verse 8. Now a new king came to power in Egypt. He didn't know Joseph. He said to his people, the Israelite people are now larger in number and stronger than we are. Come, let's be smart. Let's deal with them. Otherwise, they will only grow in number and it'll be, when war breaks out, they will join our enemies. They'll fight against us. They'll escape from the land. As a result, the Egyptians put foremen of forced labor and gangs over the Israelites to harass them with hard work. They were to build storage cities named for Python and Ramesses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, these Israelites, the more they grew and spread. So much so that the Egyptians started to look at the Israelites with disgust and dread. So the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. They made their lives miserable with hard labor, making mortar and bricks, doing field work, and by forcing them to do all kinds of other cruel work. The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives named Shifra and Pua, saying, when you're helping the Hebrew women give birth and you see the babies being born, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, you can let her live. Now the two midwives respected God, so they didn't obey the Egyptian king. Instead, they let the baby boys live. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, where to begin with this happy little tale? Every direction you look, it's dread. So let's start at the top. There's a new king in the land who doesn't know Joseph. The Genesis generation is gone. The Jacob and his 12 sons and the Joseph who was the second in command under another Pharaoh. This new Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph. So we have a king with no benefits. There is a new king in the land. Do you notice that he doesn't have a name? We don't know if that's the Hebrew storytellers getting back at him, denying him a name, or if it's simply this king, this pharaoh, is to stand for all oppressors in Egypt's history. There is a king who doesn't know Joseph, but there are Israelites. There are Israelites who won't stop having babies. Oh, they keep producing five different verbs in one sentence. They multiplied, they're populous, they're fertile. They grew dramatically. They filled the whole land. And the storyteller will keep using that language again and again as the story unfolds. What is with these people? They won't stop with the babies. Well, the creator said it would be this way. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the land and here it's happening. God's story church is always a life-giving story. The accusation is that there are too many Hebrews. We don't know how many is too many, but for Pharaoh, it's too many. And Pharaoh is frightened. They'll turn on us. If war breaks out, we'll be in trouble. They might join with the others. So the Pharaoh says, 
um, we're going to devise a plan. And this is the first time that Israel is actually called Israel, the sons of Israel. The Pharaoh kind of promotes the Hebrew people by giving them a title, the Israelites, the sons of, the Israel, of Israel. He elevates their status. They're now a people. Israel, they were first guests in Egypt. We shouldn't forget how the story began. They, so, they sold themselves into this slavery for a pot of soup during really scarce times, famine in the land. But first they came to Egypt as guests and then guest workers and then they become, in this story, forced laborers. How many Hebrews is too many Hebrews in the city? Is it because you're walking around town and you can't hear your own language or find your own food? Is it because they're changing the culture? We don't know. We just know it's too many for Pharaoh. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says it's because Pharaoh, this king, he is unrelieved in his desire for more. He already has it all. He has the land and the food. He has the slaves and the people. He is unrelieved in his desire for more. It's not enough. He has to have more. No restraint, this king. So they do hard work. They have them build these storage units. Storage cities is more like it. We're in about the 19th dynasty of Egypt's ancient story in the delta region of that beautiful country. Many people die during this process, and we should notice it's not only Hebrews or the nation of Israel now enslaved and building. Forced workers on public property, developing the land. And now they've become property of this pharaoh. Maybe this is why later, in later generations in Israel's story, they will make laws against this hard, forced labor. The nation of Israel will make their own law in the book of Leviticus that says, you're not allowed to force this kind of rough labor. The nation of Israel will make a law in Exodus. If you buy a Hebrew servant, every seven years you'll set that servant free. We won't treat them like we were treated the nation of Israel will go along on with a commandment for the Sabbath day, and on that day, all the servants and slaves will also rest because they remember what it was to be forced laborers in Egypt. Build more bricks, make more granary, store more grain, control the food supply, control the people. This is what Pharaoh's up to. It's an us against them, lines are drawn in the sand, and do you notice that we have been sorting ourselves for centuries? Us and them. The headline of the story is oppression. Most people say that of this, these tales in the book of Exodus. Affluent people like you and I, difficult for us to relate to this. If affluent people like the little girls in the Mother's Day story earlier, right? If your biggest problem is she takes your phone away. If your biggest problem is you can't get the car keys to take the car out tonight. If my biggest problem is I can't get the date I want. If my biggest problem is I have to take a break from a, a quarter or a semester of college to save more money. If my problem is I can't get into the school I want. If my oppression is those healthcare premiums just keep climbing. If my oppression is don't you hate how you can't get a good tomato in the winter? Don't you hate those winter tomatoes in California? They make the worst tacos. Affluent people, all of us, hard to understand these stories of oppression. 
Once oppression and violence set in, it engenders more oppression and violence. The people against the people, the Egyptians against the Israelites, the Israelites against the Egyptians, and also among themselves, each for their own now. Everybody's for their own. And you know how that works, because you were kids. You hit me, I hit you. You're adults, you hit me, I hit you. You let you call at me, I'll call at you, even as we age. My father spent some time in a memory care center towards the latter part of his life, and when he would go to his meals, he got into this little habit of stealing the dessert from the tray next to him. (laughs) And he would eat his dessert and her dessert too, and she'd look over and see her dessert gone. Took a little while to realize, this guy steals food. Only dessert, by the way, only dessert. You steal my dessert, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you. You hit me, I'm going to hit you, even when we're older. Oppression begets violent behavior among the creatures. This is what happens in this story. Egypt against Israel, Israel against Egypt. If you want to elevate one group over another group in this world, undercut our capacity to care for each other. And now we've got traction. Pharaoh does just that. The more they work, the more the Israelites grow. Pharaoh's plan is not working. He's unrelieved in his desire for more. So in a very public act, the Bible says he calls all the Egyptians together. I don't know what all the Egyptians could be. There are great storytellers at work on this little story, by the way. Terrific Hebrew literature, we don't, I don't really understand. Terrific poetry and structures. All of Egypt comes together now in a very public act. Pharaoh says, let's get smart, let's make a plan. So he turns to the two women. I particularly like this picture of our two midwives featured in our story today. Pharaoh finds Shifra and Pua. They are delivery room nurses. I don't know how only two of them take care of all the people. It's a little detail in the story. The Egyptian population is all stuffed into this scene, but catch how it's off balance. All the people and Pharaoh seem to be in this conversation and two little voiceless women. Two little voiceless women with names and one big king without a name. Everything stuffed into this story of Pharaoh talking face-to-face with servants, with slaves, sure, because that's what kings do. It's this incredible little scene when Pharaoh comes to the two midwives. When you deliver the Hebrew women, check and see if it's a boy or a girl. The boys, kill them. And Pharaoh leaves the room. And I wonder, how long until these two women speak? Who speaks first? And what do they say? How do you take women who deal in life and attempt to make them servants of death? Do they pace or do they pause? Do they scream or do they dream? What happens now that Pharaoh has left the room? That's the part of the story I would love to know. Pharaoh's goal is to leave the population of girls and women, and the girls and the women will be dispersed now as slaves because the women are harmless. It's also strange that Pharaoh wants to kill all the Israelite boys because that will be his future labor crew. 
He won't have any more slaves if he kills all the boys now, but whatever, this is his plan, and he leaves the room. The moment Pharaoh leaves the room, we have to decide. The women must decide in that moment. Last week, church, we began our conversation on biblical justice, and many of us were camping with the Pathfinders, with the Adventurers. We were at the Academy for the homecoming weekend. We had a whole church full of precious guests. So please go back and pick up last week's sermon Listen to the podcast, go on to the church website, La Sierra Church. Biblical justice, this isn't the justice of, uh, of the court systems. This isn't the justice necessarily of philosophers. This isn't necessarily the justice in your family, in your homes. This isn't you get what you deserve or I get what I deserve. Last week I told that my brother and I, we'd sit in the closet and play. I don't know why. We'd go in the closet, close the door, have all of our toys. Uh, one, one of those days he turned to me and bit me on the shoulder. And when he realized I was bleeding, he broke my skin. He troubled him, and he said, I'm so sorry. And he, he said, here, you bite me. You just bite me now. Justice. Although I'm not really sure who bit first, I said last week. We're not talking about that kind of justice. This is biblical justice, and it's an entirely different story. Two words we're focused on for these five weeks that come to us from the Old Testament. One is the kind of everyday generous living, which usually shows up as the word right, righteous, righteousness in our Bible. The everyday generous living where we have our eyes open, where we bring food because we have students on campus who need to eat to take tests in a couple of weeks. That's, that's not special, friends. That's everyday justice. That's not special. But there's the more special kind that sometimes escalates when we're not doing the everyday justice. Sometimes we jump in with this urgent activism, a more rectifying justice. This is mishpat. This is all hands on deck. There's a crisis. The Bible is full of all kinds of stories on the sliding scale of what kind of righteousness or justice will be required. Last week we talked about this. We, I asked you, write out your own definition for biblical justice because it matters what we think this word means. Righteousness and justice. All of this is based on, based on God creating creatures in God's image and God asking creatures to honor the image of God in one another, to care for what God cares for, to join God in a justice journey. Now, this is the whole Bible story. Go, listen to last week, please. Not because it's the best sermon, but because the topic matters for us. Pick up the reading lists that are in the literature racks, the little racks in the, in the lobby areas, go online, it's hanging on the website. Pick a book, one of many titles for all ages. Get a group together, start talking. Start talking about it with your family this afternoon. Pick up this little video, by the way. This little video from the Bible Project, we're not gonna watch it, but I'll just call it out to you. The folks at the Bible Project have about a five-minute summary on biblical justice. It's pretty good. You don't even have to listen to a 28-minute sermon from last week. The Bible Project, justice, if you search for that this afternoon, you'll find it. When we attempt then to define biblical justice, here's a few summary definitions I'll give you today. Justice is giving people their due as humans created in the image of God, says Tim Keller. That's the first book on the reading list. Or from Julie Clausen, justice is the practical result of loving God and loving others. Or from Dr. Cornell West, justice is what love looks like in public. 
biblical justice. Please hear me now. The idea of justice, biblical justice, doesn't belong to the left or to the right, to the conservatives or to the liberals or to any political conversation. The idea of biblical justice belongs to God. It's a much larger story. The two midwives are in the moment now where they've got to decide. They have a decision to make. Shifra and Pua, now it's time to decide. So go ahead, church, and call forward every female protagonist you love. From Mulan to Moana, right? From Joan of Arc to Sojourney Truth. Call on them all. You want Hermione? You want Katniss? You want the women from the Avengers? Call them all forward right now. This is the moment. We mentioned, we mentioned Avengers in our classroom this week, Vaughn and Bev and I, and the students went crazy. Stop talking. If you don't stop talking, we're leaving right now. They haven't seen the movie yet. Spoiler, spoiler, I just like I just said the word Avengers out loud. That's all we did. If you keep talking, teacher, we're going to leave. One student said, are you going to say another word? Because I'm going to go now. I said, would you see the movie this week so we could talk next week? It's that moment. Shifra and Pua only, they don't have a director to cue the scene, and they don't have a supporting cast, and they don't have costumes and stage lights and production and design, and they don't have a fan club, and they don't have a paycheck, and they don't have a career of stardom that will follow them the rest of their lives. Two small, powerless voices. It is their moment. And in the quietness of these moments, they decide the boys shall live. They are non-compliant to the king, and it changes the story. The text says they fear God. It means they respect God. It means God is their sovereign. It means their imperatives for justice come from the divine. God's story is a life-giving story. We can't kill these babies. It's a simple choice they made. Not easy. The rest of the story unfolds in verse 18. The king of Egypt called the two midwives and said to them, why are you doing this? Why are you letting the baby boys live? The two midwives said to Pharaoh, because Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women. They're just stronger. They give birth before the midwives can even get to the room. Can you believe it? Never have I ever. They're so vigorous and strong. We can't even get there. This isn't called the midwives. Can you believe it, Pharaoh? These Old Testament stories are always dusted with some deceit, seasoned generously. Tell the truth that we don't tell the truth, right? Because it pays once in a while to be deceptive. It's paid in Israel's history. They have many stories. Tell the truth, this week even, I was traveling for meetings up to our sister campus, Pacific Union College. When I checked into the hotel, are you here on business or pleasure? I said, business. Oh, what kind of business are you in? You already know, church, that's my least favorite question in the whole world. Because as soon as you say pastor, the whole conversation goes south. What kind of profession are you in? I teach. Whoa, what great. Wasn't this just teacher appreciation week? Did your students take good care of you? They did. Oh, what grade do you teach? I teach a multi-level classroom. 
I have never had to go this far into my deception story. On my feet, she wouldn't stop talking. Oh, multi-level classroom, that's fascinating. What's your subject? We are, life is good. We are a special needs classroom. Oh, God bless you. We need, she pokes the woman next to her, we need more special education teachers in this world, don't we? I have never had to go this deep into my deception, so hello, multi-grade classroom of special need learners. If you ever get asked, yes, that's the deal. The stories in the Old Testament are sprinkled with deception, and sometimes it works until it doesn't. It works when God responds to the midwives. This is what God says to them. Finally, we hear God's voice when God speaks back to the midwives. God treated the midwives well, verse 20. The people kept on multiplying and became very strong. And because the midwives respected God, listen to this church, God gave them households of their own. Please hear, especially my female partners in this room, please notice the text does not say God gave them babies of their own. God elevated them to household leaders. There are other additional blessings God is capable of giving us. We don't know if they're beyond childbearing age. We don't know if they're living single. What we know is they're mothering a nation. God elevates them to household leaders. Now a fresh command because Pharaoh is angry and there's stronger words we could use, but we're in church. Pharaoh's no longer in control, in, interested in controlling the population. He wants to eliminate the Hebrews. It's called infanticide, infanticide, to kill all the babies. He's gonna wipe them off the face of the earth. Some Jewish scholars say this is the beginning of the story that led to Nazi Germany. So he, Pharaoh takes the story to his hands. He gives the order, throw every baby born. Every Hebrew boy will go to the Nile River. You can let the girls live. Not even the Prince of Egypt, not even the DreamWorks people can make this command palatable. I can't even show you the video clip from the Prince of Egypt because the hieroglyphics are so graphic and still when you read on the parental review blogs, we're troubled because one of the guards has his bum showing. But we're okay with pictures like this. Show us this next one, Adam. There's entire scenes of babies being pulled out of their beds and mothers being pulled by their hair. All the baby boys are gonna be killed. Terrorizing scenes. And within a few generations, this clan, the Hebrew people, would be gone. The irony is that in the very next chapter, church, the Nile River will become the bed for the baby Moses. And the next woman who steps forward to join the resistance will be Pharaoh's own daughter. It turns out the next chapter is, so, is full of so, as much irony as this one. From this moment forward, we learn that there are 12 women in the nation of Israel. 12 women who care for the 12 tribes. 
If it weren't for the 12 women in the first two chapters of Exodus, we wouldn't get the 12 tribes of Israel, that longevity. We wouldn't get to the 12 disciples of Jesus. The midwives are helping God birth a generation. The midwives are individuals, but they're also national midwives, hands and feet of God, the deliverance of God's people. It's a birth story. It turns out Isaiah chapter 42 will talk about the Lord as the Lord our warrior, but in the next verse we'll say that the Lord is crying out in the birth pains of a mother. Both at the same time. God birthing people. Human courage and wisdom shaping God's story. Sometimes we sabotage ourselves into thinking that problems in the world are so large and overwhelming. The need for justice is everywhere and we don't know how to get focused or traction or who to trust or who has the right information. And the sabotage moment there is that we go back home and just keep our own lives in balance and we don't engage because it's overwhelming. But please notice with Shifra and Pua today something that Dwayne Esmond says. God does not ask us to make all things right. God asks us to do the next right thing. What is the next right thing for you? Sometimes the next right thing is urgent and big, and sometimes it will be urgent and small, but not insignificant. The rest of this series will talk about urgent and smaller choices, everyday choices that we make, choices about the earth, choices about economics, choices about human labor, choices about the Sabbath. Making other people's problems my problems. This is justice. Today, God doesn't ask us to make all things right. God asks us to do the next right thing. Once upon a time, there was a new pharaoh in the land. But once upon a time, there were God's people, the nation of Israel. Amen.